Hello, you're listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Robinson, and today's episode is a recording from a webinar we held on November 2nd, 2023. This webinar focused on the topic of the war between Israel and Hamas. Rachel Washburn is the moderator for this webinar that features our Geopolitical Intelligence Group members, Major General Mastin Robison, Lieutenant General David Deptula, and our Head of Macro Strategy, Peter Chur. Here's Rachel to start the conversation. Welcome all. Uh, before we begin, we are very excited to announce that this webinar is brought to you by the Academy Vets ETF a veteran impact ETF focused on providing market-based returns while investing in mortgage-backed and asset-backed securities that support veterans. VETS with a Z invests in residential mortgage loans to active duty service members and veterans, as well as loans to veteran-owned small businesses. To learn more, please visit academyetfs.com or contact your broker. The Academy VETS ETF is offered by Academy Asset Management, asset management affiliate of Academy Securities, a registered broker-dealer. General Robison, General Deptula, Peter Chur, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's been a busy couple years for Academy on the geopolitical front, and uh, that remains true um, over the summer and into the fall. And unfortunately, um, the last month has been, uh, our focus has been the war in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas. <clears throat> We're about a month in um, to the conflict, and I think there have been some surprises about how it's evolved. We've done a really great job of keeping our clients and our partners informed from our advisory board's point of view, and um, we're very grateful to have the opportunity to provide an update today. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, General Robinson, I want to go ahead and just start with you, give you the opportunity to essentially give us um, a synopsis of how you have viewed the conflict so far. What has surprised you um, as it has evolved and where we stand today? Um, you know, what are the highlights that you want to remind our audience of? Thanks, Rachel. And uh, thanks, everybody, for joining. Um, so, so I think the, the framework all begins by saying there's a long history in the Levant of Russia, Syria, Iran, and Hezbollah partnership. Uh then secondly, there's obviously been a long uh, Arab versus Israel uh, point of issue going all the way back to when the UN established uh, a, a piece of property for Israel to occupy. Uh, those were altered slightly by the Camp David Accords. They were altered even more by the Abraham Accords. And today we enjoy a number of countries in the Middle East who uh, have adopted a lot of our economic and, and democratic processes in in how they do business and are thriving as a result of it. Um, that's The reason that's important is because that explains a little bit, although it doesn't excuse, uh, why Israel kind of took their, their eye off the ball. Uh, they too had started bringing uh, you know, Palestinians out of the Gaza uh, across the border on a daily basis to work in Israel. Uh, they had, I think, been got a little sleep on the switch, overly reliant on their technology, really believed that their wall and their technology and their remote cameras would be sufficient. Totally caught off guard by the fact that Hamas could so quickly dismantle everything with drones. Um, caught off guard by the, um, the technical planning that Hamas had put in uh, and the year, at least year worth of training 
and moving of ammunition, arms, and so forth, uh, to be able to mount an attack that we've seen. Uh, so the surprise of it, I think, uh, is probably the biggest surprise that Hamas was able to pull this off without Israel having any really early warning of what was going on. Although there are certainly indications that there were some early warnings that were ignored um, by the leadership, um, it, it still seems to be the entire intelligence community um, was a bit stunned at how efficient and effective Hamas's attack was. And it was efficient and effective. And that the Israel had downsized their security architecture, physical security architecture, as in soldiers that were typically stationed close to the Gaza and close to the borders as a offset to the technological advances they'd made to be able to say, we can do this technologically for early warning. Uh, that coupled with the fact that it was such a, a massive success of Hamas's uh, attack, uh, the the brutality uh, and the large numbers of casualties, I think, stunned everybody. Um, Israel obviously uh, pivoted and said, okay, we're going to make a decision and we're going to, this is going to be a destruction of Hamas uh, operation. They took their time putting it together. We certainly asked them to pause uh, to allow us to get air defense assets into the theater to protect some of our uh, assets that were in the theater. But when they went, they they did indeed do exactly what they said they would do, which was unleash. Uh, and they went after Hamas uh, probably more holistically than, than we even expected that they would. Uh, they were true to the word. They made every effort to try to get uh, Palestinians to leave. That was somewhat stymied by the fact that neither Egypt nor Jordan were willing to open their borders uh, and really take them in, which, again, there's there's a complexity here between uh, a radicalism of Hamas and Hezbollah and brotherhood in Egypt and things like that and Palestinian people that may or that, that really are the if anybody's a victim in this is Palestinian people who are not part of the radical group, but don't have really a choice at this point. Um, so we've seen Israel go in uh, first initially with probing. They came in from sea, from air, from land. Then after they had the intel that they had been trying to collect to ensure where the tunnels were, where the leaders were, then they started unleashing the ability to attack and kill. Uh, a lot of that has been done by air, uh, but it will it will need to be finished by land campaign to root out every corner, every tunnel, every byway. If you're really going to do what Israel says they are going to do, which is the destruction of Hamas, Hamas's leaders, killing the Hamas leaders, and and holding Hamas accountable for this. Obviously, Hezbollah uh, on the flank of the north uh, is an, is a, a serious concern. Iran is a serious concern. Uh, Russia is a serious concern, particularly if they start pushing in air defense assets and other things that reinforce Hezbollah. So where we stand as of today, um, Israel. Uh, certainly has a sizable force in Gaza. They have more assets they're going to push in. They have still two-thirds of their force probably positioned to ensure that if it's a two-front war, they can respond accordingly. Um, and I think this is going to be probably uh, not a quickly won or adjudicated fight. Uh, urban fights typically take a lot longer than you think they do. Certainly. And um, later in the conversation, want to dive a little bit deeper into your perspective on 
um, what that urban warfare could look like um, and how the Israelis may be viewing it. Um, before we go down that road, General Deptula, with the exception of this, the last five days, um, the Israeli response has been primarily aerial in nature. Can you just from your perspective share um, what that strategy looks like, what it accomplishes and how it uh, lays the groundwork for um, future operations? Yeah, thank you, Rachel. I, I think it's we, it's it's very important to understand uh, the macro level approach that the Israeli Defense Forces are taking. Um, we've been hearing a lot about an anticipated major ground force operation um, by Israel into Gaza, and I think it is uh, important to realize that Israel's military operations are being integrated across all domains of warfare, whether that be uh, in the air, uh, at sea, land, space, cyber, and information. So it's a multi-domain effort. And while we're seeing ground operations enter into uh, the equation uh, in a more prominent fashion, um, air operations will continue um, as will operations in the other domains. In fact, one of the primary roles of ground operations is going to be to gather intelligence about Hamas's tunnels, their rocket locations, their command and control, um, and other key nodes, um, then to be destroyed um, from the air or other means. So what you can expect to see is a rapid cycle of intelligence as well as operations uh, that's designed uh, for the Israeli Defense Forces to crush Hamas in a very integrated fashion. So this is going to be much more than just a ground campaign. It's a multi-domain campaign where the Israeli Defense Forces will capitalize on the strengths of each element. So in a nutshell, I think it's important to realize this. I, you know, I'm kind of amazed at the uh, over the last couple of weeks, this, you know, push to characterize what's going to happen is only going to be on the ground because that's certainly not the case. I appreciate that clarification, uh, General Robinson, just keeping it uh, focused to the, the sort of tactical level fight. Can you share some of your insights on what um, a ground invasion really looks like in a place so um, concentrated and in such an urban environment as Gaza? Yeah, and, and first let me just say I totally agree with what General Deptula said. I, this is absolutely a multi-domain fight, um, but it's still going to be a, a very, very hard fight to, to actually go in and kill, destroy, and clear um and and no matter how many you know bombs you drop as we're seeing in in ukraine you know there are ways to to hide uh underground and and under in basements and in subways and so forth um so it it, it i think what you'll see is a ground force that goes in in integrated with what john Deppel was talking about to actually provide some of those intelligence and some of that actual clear and search uh, so that you can, you can, in essence, weed down and take away uh, the areas that Hamas has the opportunity to go into. Uh, the problem is going to be you, you can't clear it and then 
leave it un, unguarded or it will get backfilled. So you're going to have to hold what you clear uh, if you're going to be effective. And I think that was one of the things that we learned in the march up to Baghdad was, you know, you know, we went in with a smaller force than than we had anticipated we would go in with. And and as such, we did not have the assets and the to be able to continue to hold the ground that we cleared as we moved through. And that wasn't even urban. That was just going across, you know, the desert and through towns. But an urban fight is the, the real challenge is how do you do it without you know, and limit as much as you can civilian casualties. And it requires everything's going to be booby traps. You have to create your own entry points, uh, probably with the explosion. Then you're going to enter in with teams. You're going to clear deliberately room to room. Uh, with the fill and flow uh, type nature, and and you're going to be in essence taking one shot, one kill, uh, with lights on and with with IR and with you know headlamps. It, it's it's going to be everything from buildings to tunnels, and it it's a slow process to do and do well and do deliberately, and really then as John Deptula was saying, everything that you find has to then be quickly cycled back into the intelligence decision making cycle so that they can make the next decision as quickly as possible to take advantage of the momentum that you're getting as you clear things. Yeah, Rachel, if I can, uh, if I could jump back in here just to amplify uh, what General uh, Robeson just said uh, and, and highlight very specifically for the audience, the biggest challenge facing the Israeli Defense Forces in Gaza is going to be eliminating Hamas who are intentionally intermingling themselves with civilians in direct violation of international humanitarian law. Uh, and again, I think it is unfortunate that so few don't understand that these laws obligate Hamas to avoid locating military objectives within d- densely populated areas. And in fact, to protect the civilian population under control. I think we all realize that Hamas is in gross violation of these laws. Um, For example, their major command centers located underneath the largest hospital in Gaza. So Hamas is intentionally aiming to kill civilians, to include Palestinians, um, and that's part of their strategy. Unfortunately, um, even while Israel does not attack civilians, um, civilian casualties will occur, uh, but there is absolutely no moral or any other kind of equivalency between uh, Hamas uh, and Israel as uh, some of the uh, uh, Iranian, Hamas, uh, Russian, and uh, other actors are portraying. Uh, simply uh, uh, not, not there and using the presence of civilians to render areas uh, or combatant forces immune from attack is a war crime. Uh, And that is going to be one of the most difficult issues that the IDF faces, whether they attack um, from the air, from the sea, or on the ground. Yeah, so so to draw that out, just to touch more to it, so as you go into a room, and you you end up with five people in there that that are unknowns when you when you enter the, the go through the wall. If they don't have a weapon that's that's pointing at you, then you know you really are trying to figure: Are they a civilian? Are they Hamas? Are they what are they? Because you're going to clearly kill somebody that has a weapon, but you're going to you're going to in essence disarm, search, uh, probably uh, zip zip lock. You know those that are unknowns. 
to then be able so that that really makes it slow as you're going through this. And my guess is Hamas isn't sitting in these buildings with weapons, you know, waiting. They're like John Deptoodle says, they're trying their best to blend in with the population, which makes it really hard for the teams that they go in on the ground. Yeah, that uh, the necessary tactical patience in those extremely high stakes, high stress environments. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's plenty of people on our teams and certainly on this call who can appreciate um, what an extremely difficult situation that is. And um, I, I want to, we're getting some questions from the audience. Um, and again, for anyone on the call, we welcome any input, questions um, from the audience today. We will definitely save some time at the end to address all of those. But uh, some themes that I'm already seeing in the question gives us an opportunity to, to kind of take a bigger picture look now um, from the, the tactical ground effort, uh, ground and air effort, to the um, strategic implications of this conflict. And um, would I think the elephant in the room is how involved was Iran in the original attack? How are we seeing them play into um, not only the ongoing conflict in Israel and Gaza, but how maybe public opinion has evolved around the globe, how um, Arab nations have coalesced around the conflict? Um, just would love a, a kind of macro look at um, how the region is responding and um, really with a focus on what is what position is Iran playing in this? Um, let me jump in there uh, right up front uh, because it, it is a very complex situation, but know that uh, Hamas um, with Iran's support um, aims not to defeat Israel on a Gaza battlefield. They can't but rather by de attempting to delegitimize de Israel in the eyes of the world community. So this is an enormous information operation as well. Uh, and malign disinformation and manipulating perceptions is a fundamental element of Hamas's strategy along with Iran. Um, you know, I think everyone recognizes that in, in Iran is smart enough to understand uh, they've done everything they can to keep direct fingerprints off of them. But know this, that uh, Hamas and Hezbollah um, are completely supported by Iran. Uh, so the issue here is to, to understand that and recognize that uh, and recognize that um, Iran and the other radical Islamists and their extremist supporters around the world are using the fact that it generally takes truth about six times as long as falsehoods to reach thousands of people. And that disinformation is about 70% more likely to be shared on social media than news that's actually true. Um, we, we saw that validated by the errant missile yeah. launched by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad that everyone jumped on right away and, and you know claimed it was Israel's fault. So it's a very complex situation. And people say, well, how do you combat that? By continuing to offer uh, actual perspectives of what's really going on. Um, I mean, that's not very immediately gratifying, uh, but that's the only way that we're going to be able to, I think, combat the mistruths. Uh, which gets us into this whole issue of these calls for uh, a ceasefire. 
Um, that's the last thing that needs to happen right now. But um, I'll pause there. So that's that's clearly the, the, the bad news. The good news is uh, Egypt, uh, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, they have more no more love for Iran than we do. In fact, I would say the, the, the Gulf states by and large view Iran as their biggest threat. Um, now, that that's at the ruling party level. But but what John Deptula is describing is, you know, the, the disinformation in the social media has has certainly a risk of inflaming the general population uh, all, across the Middle East into, you know, potentiality. You know, th this could turn ugly for even ruling parties in each of those countries that up until now have been, you know, at least neutral, if not supportive of you know, what the U.S. has done in the Middle East. Peter, I need you to jump in here because uh, it, it your perspective has been really interesting from day one about how this could escalate and have sort of an overall macro impact. So, you know, from day one till now, uh, what are you seeing and what has you concerned for the future? You know, one thing that I, I think we've got to mention that seems very awkward, but you know, Iran is still under sanctions from us, but is apparently selling 3.2, 3.3 million barrels of oil a day. So here's a country that we've had sanctions against that to some degree we've turned a blind eye. And you think about what we've been doing in the U.S. for the last two years is doing everything we can to keep the price of oil down. So I'm not sure how much that has played into Iran, maybe feeling they can get away with something, um, but it is an issue. The SPR has never really been refilled from the levels we brought it down to. There was some a small amount to, of filling going on after he used up the SPR. So we're fairly vulnerable. I think we now have to go reach out to Venezuela. We put some demands on Venezuela, including free elections, which their courts have shot down, but we'll still do it. So oil, to some degree, is at the heart of this. And, you know, how or why Iran has been able to sell this oil on the market, I think that might be staying the hand of people really trying to point the finger. And as one reason I think so many people are very scared that escalation may force our hand to say, well, you can't sell that oil anymore that drives up oil prices and we've seen what the u.s has had a lot of difficulty dealing with inflation so i think that's the one big issue i think the other thing and general robson said it. i think day one we went on radio together talked about the social media war the disinformation and the attempts to sway the average person in the middle east against their leadership who may have been pursuing the abraham accords like the saudis right clearly they want to be westernized they are preparing for the economy that's not as oil dependent they want the to be part of a broader economy, not all the people are wanting this. So that's playing out. And I would say, you know, we're seeing it play out more in the US than I would have thought, where I think in the US, there was a pretty, you know, the whole country seemed to coalesce around Putin is bad. We should help Ukraine, no boots in the ground on day one or two. And that was kind of the messaging. Some of that's fraying over time as people are getting tired of the war and things like that. But there was a pretty consistent message. And I think here the messaging comes across some people, Israel should be more aggressive. Some people saying Israel should back off. There's a lot more questions about boots on the ground, I think, from a U.S. perspective than we ever saw. I think it was very clear the U.S. was not going to put boots in the ground um, in Ukraine. That's coming up. And I think all those things are bubbling up there that raise the specter of escalation to almost a concerning level. Well, Peter, I want to stick with you for just another moment and uh, address two questions from the audience. 
Um, one is, is pretty direct. Do you think the potential escalation of this war has become a factor in Fed decision uh, making around rate policies? So I think Powell yesterday said so far it's a localized event, tragic, but not having broader economic um, impacts. But I think behind the scenes, yes, they have to be very careful because anything that disrupts the oil industry will be very dramatic. We're also starting to hear reports that Israel is experiencing a pretty dramatic slowdown, right? People are having in certain parts of the country difficulty going to work. I've heard from a couple of companies who are more reliant on the region. They're starting to see some disruptions or concerns about disruptions in their supply chain. So not just in oil, but other products. A lot of tech and biotech industries rely heavily on you know, Israeli uh, you know, production in Israel. So it hasn't yet hit the supply chains. I think that's an additional risk where you have a COVID-like event where you're really restricting productivity. So I think all those things should take be taken into account. And it is going to contribute to a slowing economy. I already think the economy is going to slow. I think this is going to be additive. Um, so I do think the Fed, at least in the back of their mind, there is no way they're going to hike until this gets some you know, form of resolution. And General Datula, next to you, um, just pulling on a thread that Peter mentioned, because there's a few questions from the audience um, about the Abraham Accords. I think what's been interesting and maybe a little bit surprising to me is um, some Arab leaders uh, you know, people like Saudi Arabia, who is trying to reform um, their standing in the region and globally, that they aren't being more proactive. We've seen Erdogan come out again to try to be proactive on, uh, you know, voicing a call for resolution or condemning actions. Um, but Saudi Arabia is interesting, especially given their conflict with who the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels, and just would love for you to. Um, Give us your thoughts on how the relationship between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Israel through the lens of the Abraham Accords inform their response to the current conflict. Yeah, um, Rachel, it's an excellent question. Um, and I think you highlight the fact that Saudi Arabia is largely staying out of the fray. And that's because, um, you know, they, they're not willing I, my opinion, you know, they're not willing uh, to give up um, that effort that was progressing pretty well in establishing a greater partnership between Saudi Arabia and, and Israel, uh, because I think their leadership is taking the long view um, in the context of what is in their self best self interest, um, and that is to arrive um, at. Uh, uh, a mutually beneficial agreement um, with Israel. Now, clearly that's not something that <clears throat> they're gonna bring to the forefront in discussions and do that publicly today. But I think that ultimately that's being signaled by the fact that, um, that they're, you know, they're, they're, they're staying pretty much out of the, the discussions and, uh, and, and laying low for the time being. So um, I think there's, you know, that as uh, undefinitive as the actions are, um, I think that this is a statement without being a statement um, that they are taking a long view and they're not letting uh, Hamas's uh, horrendous actions uh, get in the way of a potential future set of agreements that would benefit the entire Mideast. Jen Robinson would love your point of view as well. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I, and I think it's not just Saudi. I think it's Jordan. I think it's Egypt. Um, and, and I think those countries that have come on board with the Abraham Accords, and, and again, some of it goes all the way back to Camp David Accords, uh, particularly when it comes to, to Egypt and to Jordan, uh, have really made some progress over the decades. Um, and, and they would be definitely rolling back <clears throat> a lot of progress if, if they don't walk this lane carefully. But they have a population that does not necessarily, uh, in, in some of these countries, uh, have the same vision. So I, I think that, that you're going to see some some ruling parties in, in the Gulf uh, walk a, a careful line trying to keep their their country grounded economically, simultaneous with their people grounded emotionally. And, and that's not going to be an easy thing uh, in some of these countries. And I want to shift uh, quickly to the U.S. involvement and perspective. Um, curious how you view the United States diplomatic effort to manage the crisis, um, and then how our what our strategy is to support Israel, how it's evolved, um, especially given some of the. Uh, informational aspects um, and uh, perspective around the globe about how this conflict is evolving? I mean, how does that impact how we support Israel? Uh, Rachel, let me jump in here, but I think it's an excellent question again. Uh, and uh, candidly, I, I think um, the administration's response uh, to date uh, has been pretty good with respect to what the um, uh, U.S. is trying to do by moving forces into the region uh, to indicate uh, a strong willingness um, to deter uh, Iran from encouraging Hezbollah from increasing uh, the potential of conflict. Now, for deterrence to be effective, um, I do think the administration, and they have been doing this to a degree, uh, but they have to be a little bit more clear than just saying don't uh, to indicate its willingness to actually employ force um, with its deployed aircraft against Iran's uh, proxies uh, if, it's, if it's necessary. Now, beyond deterrence, um, the United States has to offer and will offer, has offered additional security assistance to Israel that includes replenishing their munition stocks um, that they've already depleted in their defense, uh, specifically weapons necessary for re replenishment of their Iron Dome uh, interceptors, um, small diameter bombs, ammunition rounds for artillery, machine guns, and then heightened cooperation on intelligence sharing um, related to potential military um, activities, both in Southern Lebanon, uh, as well as, you know, the continued information that we can and do provide on uh, what's going on in uh, Gaza and also with the Houthis for that matter. Um, so uh, one other comment I'd like to throw in there because there are implications here for the United States military that folks generally don't understand. And while I personally had hoped that Russia's aggression into Ukraine would be a wake up call, it wasn't. Um, as we saw the administration and Congress agree to reductions in the US military over the next two years. So perhaps the need to resupply Israel 
while at the same time continue to support Ukraine, will get the attention of the American people, the necessity to put our national defense at the top of U.S. government priorities. Because if we don't, that's going to bode very poorly for our ability to win when it comes time for us to engage in our next military conflict. And I guarantee you that time is coming. That's a perfect segue into my next question, because the last you know, nearly two years have really been plagued by geopolitical emergencies, but from a United States interest perspective, conflicts that maybe don't rise to the same strategic level as our view um, of our growing friction with China. So that our advisor board continues to say, that's the, the main effort that we need to remain focused on um, and remain committed to planning for and focusing on. Um, so General Robinson, what's your view about how this conflict, the conflict in Ukraine, how it's impacting um, a U.S. focus on more strategic, uh, potential strategic confrontations around the world? It, it certainly is a distraction from the other places. You can't look at everything equally all the time. One of the good things about the United States is that we don't watch these places from Washington. I mean, we do, but that's really not where the, the watch occurs. It's, you know, you still have your Pacific Command out there and you have, you know, a ton of people out there watching China and, and what's going on in the Pacific Rim. And, and that won't stop. Their attention will not be distracted by what's going on in Israel or what's going on in Ukraine. It, it will stay focused on what they're focused on. So I don't I don't think we're going to take an eye off the bubble, but I do agree with John Deptula that there's a, there's a readiness aspect of this for the U.S. that needs to be a wake-up call for us, number one. Number two, I, I still am of the opinion that China <clears throat> has to be watching what's going on and how um, what happened with Ukraine and Russia so quickly unified the world against Russia when it came to sanctions. Um, and I, I don't think, I don't see China rushing into the same type of sanctions. It, it would certainly be more devastating to them than it was for Russia, who has, uh, I think, more proxy opportunities to get their stuff out and in than China does. Um, and I also don't think the Ukraine and Taiwan are comparable. Taiwan's far more capable of defending themselves than Ukraine was. Uh, very, very sophisticated uh, capability, and they really are defense in depth now from, you know, every square inch of their island being defended by uh, some reserve capabilities that have been now being cross-trained into irregular warfare and asymmetric warfare to be able to have uh, a defense in depth from in every little town and village there. So I don't really see China as the as the thing that that, you know, is going to surprise us. Um, I think it's keeping a lid on the Middle East. It's keeping a lid on Russia. It's what happens, you know, with Putin, uh, you know, with what happens to Putin, what happens with Putin, what happens with Russia, um, and what happens with NATO and, and the piece that we still haven't fully seen. Um, I don't think the in-state effects of is the massive amount of refugees and displaced people that came out of Ukraine uh, that is certainly going to be uh, increased if this goes on in, in Israel and Gaza. And that that's also going to create uh, a financial burden uh, on Europe. 
uh, and on the United States and other places where these people go to because it's a financial burden to take uh, refugees in. Peter, so we've heard from our advisory board, um, you know, over the last year, especially about how to prepare for any sort of um, maybe unforeseen or upcoming military uh, conflict. But what are we, what should we be preparing for when it comes to an economic perspective, especially as it concerns geopolitical risk? Yeah. And I think one thing I do want to highlight, though, is obviously right now we're talking about Israel. And you don't want to necessarily talk about maybe some of the less obvious or less important issues, but also at the same time, do we experience death by a thousand cuts, right? So North Korea is now supplying Russia with weapons. That's a relatively new event, not good for the war in Ukraine. Um, there have been coups in North Africa that were top headlines for a while that definitely tend not to help the U.S. and tend to be in favor of certainly Russia, maybe China. That was something we were talking about just four weeks ago off the radar screen, but no less important. And now you have events like the, um, I've got to admit, I hadn't really heard of it before, the second Thomas Shoal, where the Philippines are trying to supply a ship and supposedly a Chinese um, uh, Coast Guard has ran these ships. So you have all these little things that are just below the surface. I think my biggest fear right now is that in order to kind of calm things down with China, that we do something to appease them. We back off on tariffs or back off on some of the restrictions that we put in place that will give China the advantage I think they're looking for. And it would come at a very kind of awkward time. You know, they are not supposed to have chips smaller than 10 nanometers for their phones, yet they released a phone that has seven nanometer chips, right? How did they get those chips despite all these sanctions that we allegedly have against them? Are they producing themselves? Are people violating that? So I feel we should not give up our vi vigilance. I am most scared that the administration or someone says there's so much going on, we really need to back down from this you know, constant friction with China. It's a drain on our economy. It's a drain on our troops. It's, or sorry, it's not a drain on our troops per se, but we are spread very thin right now. And to me, I think that's something I'm watching that you know, China is selling more and more of their brands across the globe. They are growing. They are trying to exit their own economic troubles which I think is really, it's just a natural progression for Chinese brands to get sold overseas. So they're going to do that. We're seeing more and more transactions occurring in the yuan that will help countries, again, get past sanctions. Um, you know, I think it's going to be a very viable um, currency of trade, particularly for a lot of emerging markets countries who have trade um, surpluses with China. So they'd be a natural purchaser of goods and services. And if you look at the last 20, 30 years, one of the big things that U.S. has had is it really has been the currency you had to go to if you want goods and services. So as China is able to replace that, we will lose some of our you know, um, influence in the rest of the world. I think it makes sanctions more difficult to impose when people can get around them in a legitimate um, market. And while China has not yet launched their digital currency globally, they are certainly putting steps in place to have a digital yuan that may make it easier for countries who do find the SWIFT system very expensive, and I will circle so much of this back to, I think one of the biggest mistakes we made was when we froze Russia's dollar reserves, because that told every bad actor in the world that they should be careful how much they have in dollars. And a lot of those bad actors, unfortunately, are resource rich and have that ability to trade with other countries because they have something in demand. So that to me is what worries me more than the specifics of what's happening in Israel, but how we deal with China and do we give them another opportunity to get a leg up on us competitively? Um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, Rachel, I was just going to jump in there. The, um, the China question is huge. 
Um, and while we can hope that they don't take advantage of the intense resource requirements that are being placed on the United States to support both um, Israel and Ukraine, um, we also have to be prepared for the worst case. Uh, President Xi has some significant domestic challenges that lie ahead when it comes to both uh, China's economy as well as um, uh, domestic concerns. But, you know, these are going to unfold over the next 10 to 20 years. Uh, so the question becomes, okay, uh, does he wait or does he take advantage of this particular time frame? I, I believe that the severe negative economic consequences to China would be an um, uh, it, it would slow down and result in caution in him, his taking any aggressive action against Taiwan at this time. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you can be sure that the folks out in uh, Indo-Pacific uh, Command um, are uh, looking very uh, attentively at their contingency plans in case he does decide to move at this time. Well, it wouldn't be a Academy Securities geopolitical call if we didn't take an opportunity to discuss India and the role that they play in shifting global matters. So General Robinson, um, would love your point of view. You know, India has taken a pretty strong pro-Israel stance. Um, does that have any bearing on the U.S.-India relationship? And I guess, again, to just tie it into other themes is, uh, you know, is is China truly established in the camp of Russia and Iran, or are they still operating sort of independently? Um, just would love to talk, you know, focus on India first and then just some of the other big players and, and where they're landing, given some of the um, conflicts around the world. Yeah, I think India has made some, some significant steps over the last couple of years in some of their partnerships across the Pacific Rim that they traditionally didn't have, whether it's with Australia or Japan or I mean, they, we, we really have benefited from a much broader um, democratic uh, partnership across the entire Pacific Rim that ranges from India all the way up to South Korea. Um, it, countries that didn't usually talk to each other, in fact, randomly opposed to each other, such as even South Korea and Japan having talks for the first time since World War II. Um, and, and their willingness to even though no apologies have been given, uh, they're still willing at this point to come to the table and say, okay, how do we, how do, we do things economically uh, that strengthens us? So I think uh, India certainly has some risks there with, the number, with its population. It's got a sizable Muslim population that could uh, create some pressure on them. But, but right now, I think India is, is gradually weaning themselves off of their relationship with Russia, which is where they had tethered themselves from a, uh, an economic standpoint, particularly militarily with their goods and equipment. Um, and I think they are, they're, there's separation there between them and Russia. Um, I think the, the relationships that we've seen uh, multi-countries across uh, Asia Pacific uh, has very much played to our advantage. I don't see China having a desire to become a long-term partner with Russia though I definitely see that they would use a relationship with Russia to leverage their advantage independently if they had the opportunity to do it. 
but but I see China is almost wanting to continue to take a, a page out of our book. You know, they did it with their uh, quote unquote goodness of, of roads and bridges in Africa that really was in construct of uh, debt capital. But they've also are, are trying to be the broker, uh, the peace broker, and to go in and have uh, conversations to see if they can, whether it's between Iran and Saudi or or whomever. I think we'll see them keep trying to do that in an effort to elevate their status internationally. I, I think it's a it's pretty much a hollow, you know, effort because I don't think they have either the ability or the true long term desire to see. Um, to be part of a global, I think they still are uh, hardly entrenched in their communist roots and aren't going to give any of that up to, to achieve something. But but I don't see them uh, making a, a radical shift to a, a partnership with Russia unless it's unless it gets them a real advantage economically and militarily against the U.S. and against NATO. Peter, I want your view as well on India um, and maybe how recent events inform your view on where opportunity exists and partnership exists with India? Yeah, I think we are supposed to be aggressively, you know, really pursuing stronger relationships with India. I think, you know, what they've done in space is very impressive. They landed on the South Pole and the moon, first country to do that. Russia tried to land on the moon and failed recently. We are going to go back there, but we haven't been in a long time. I think it's impressive. They did it for $70 million or something relatively cheap, right? We can't produce an airplane for that cost. So I think what they're doing there, what they're doing in AI, I think the two things, um, everything I've been talking to about bank, from banks and people doing business in India is the infrastructure's improved. There's a lot of issues still around property rights and things like that, but we, we're going to have to accept that. And I think the one thing the U.S. is really going to have to do when thinking about India is understanding that India will remain independent and India wants to do what is best for India in their own view. And I think we have an easier time funneling people into your forest or against us and India is not going to be quite like that. India is not going to be all in for us. They're not going to be all in against us. And I think the better we can manage that, it, it's just a huge opportunity. I really think that, you know, in three to five years, no one will remember some of these other calls we've had. But talking about India and getting prepared for how to work with India will be super important. Um, one thing I've been hearing is there's such a backlog. Mexico was clearly a beneficiary of some of what we we're trying to do. There's such a backlog to get into Mexico. There's problems with the cartels that India is looking more attractive to people. So I think that's going to be this area of like, how do we progress this relationship? How do we get over some of the things that we have done where we supported Pakistan in favor, you know, in our war of ISIS, which did not make us popular within India. So we've had some missteps, I think, in that relationship. Um, so we can work on that. But they are going to be a leader in AI. They're going to be a leader in space as that becomes the next frontier. You know, it was, I guess, you know, quote unquote, the final frontier. But it's now the next frontier, and we're going to be seeing businesses develop that. We're seeing technology. So I think, how do we embrace with that? And the one question that did pop up, someone was asking whether the UN has become obsolete. And I want to bring back something I think we talk about a lot, um, is I think China has done a better job getting very involved in the councils that are part of the UN. They take a much more proactive role in using the UN, I think, than the US does. And it goes well beyond that. You know, The WHO, I talk about this all the time and maybe it's random, but I think it's real, was for the first two months of COVID, WHO sent out a map of the world and showing where the COVID cases were, and it was labeled Taiwan. They were forced to change that to be Taipei. 
Um, FIFA, if you look at what most of the world cares about on soccer, it is China, Taipei, not Taiwan, that is a member of FIFA. Um, you know, companies have to label their products that say various things such as that. So while we in here think of Taiwan as very, very independent, they are shaping the steps for those who don't care as much to say, well, they were always kind of China. So I don't know that some of these organizations are ineffective. I just don't think we use them as effectively maybe as China has. That's a really interesting point. And I mean, it does speak to kind of US influence around the world, what systems we use. Obviously, um, we're really great at building alliances and that's been a primary focus of the current administration. Um, General Zatula, I, I didn't mean to step on you. Did you have a point you wanted to make around? No, I, I just wanted to uh, compliment Peter on his observation as uh, frustrating as I'm sure um many people in the united states uh the frustration that they have with the united nations um i think peter makes some excellent points um at the same time um the united nations is a forum from which to present and continue uh to attempt uh, to educate and get out the perspectives that actually reflect the truth. So, uh, Peter, I think you made a good point there. And I want to just take one moment to, um, you know, we've kind of gone around the world the last 10 minutes and in the last few minutes that we have, I want to refocus just back in on the Israel-Gaza um, conflict or Hamas conflict, um, just because there are a few unanswered questions from the audience. Um, General Robinson, can you address really how organized um, is Hamas from a military perspective and maybe speak to why it makes it so difficult to um, er eradicate Hamas and what that would even look like just given the structure of uh, a group like Hamas? Yeah, so so Hamas has certainly increased their size. I think the most recent estimates, they probably have about 5,000 uh, highly skilled and trained soldiers uh, that they've spent years uh, training in and out of Iran. Uh, they invested 2,000 in the initial uh, attack into uh, Israel. Uh, they lost some of those, obviously, in that attack. But in an urban fight, you know, 4,000, they're highly trained, they're embedded in the population, is is a sizable number to have to try to root out. Um, and and you really are having to root them out. And it's a it's a an, an air, a terrain, and a subterrain fight. That makes it even more difficult, the amount of subterrain nature that you have to deal with here, and that it's it's embedded with the population that has not been able to get out because of the closed borders at this point, uh, you know, just really makes it a very, very complicated scenario for Israel to go in and do. I don't think that's going to stop them, but I think it's going to make it more complicated. It's going to take it longer, and there are going to be far more casualties. Uh, as a result of civilian casualties as a result, which will over time uh, be be more and more international pressure on what should and shouldn't be done. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, and just finally, because it, you know, it's one of the the last um, questions that came in, and I think it's a, a great note to end on. Um, and General Latula, you, you started to sort of address this, just given all the conflicts around the world, um, all the fires that the U.S. is, you know, attempting to be a part of the solution and putting out, um, 
you know, how do you view U.S. influence? Can, is this an opportunity for us to um, truly lead globally again? Um, you know, how do you view the momentum the U.S. has to be a global leader given the backdrop? Well, uh, to directly answer your question, as I mentioned earlier, I think the United States is doing a fairly good job right now in terms of the support that it is evidencing for both um, Israel and uh, Ukraine. So I do think it's taking a leadership role. Um, at the same time, um, it's also important to recognize that the source of a lot of these conflicts is Iran uh, and that the administration is going to have to stop seeking its nuclear deal. It's going to have to enforce sanctions on oil and missiles instead of ignoring Iran's violations and to restore putting maximum pressure on uh, Tehran. And that could actually include covert aid to the dissidents inside Iran so the Ayatollahs feel the pressure at home. So I, I think that uh, the administration is doing a fairly good job. Uh, but they need to increase the pressure on Iran. And Peter, uh, General Robson, you can go ahead as well. I, I was just going to say, I, I think where we're doing a, a very poor job, though, is uh, everything that John Deptill has described almost is unilaterally coming out of Washington. Uh, and, and we've done a poor job of really placing and replacing uh, our key ambassadors across the globe uh, that, that really we have a weak voice across the globe when everything is being done by a deputy chief of mission, uh, you know, or a charged affair instead of the process of a political appointee, direct representative of the president of the United States, who answers to the president of the United States, having the voice to walk into the president of the king's, the prime minister's office, and and deliver a message. That's missing in many of the countries in Africa, many of the countries in, in the Middle East, and heartened to see that we, we have an ambassador now headed to Saudi Arabia, but... I mean, just take a, if you just look at a map and say, where don't we have an ambassador? You kind of have to swallow hard and say, wow, I had no idea there were that many ambassador seats that were empty. Yeah. And, and Peter, obviously, uh, economic is you know, one of the elements of power. So what's your view on how the U.S. can lead? You know, I, I think it's really timely. We've been complaining now for the last six or seven years, it feels like that, you know, business follows the flag. And the flag has been uprooting and pulling closer and closer to home, which I think has been creating these opportunities. And it resonates a little bit with one of the things General Ashley likes to quote. Um, I guess he quotes General McChrystal, who I guess in 2014 or 15 said, there was a time where our enemies respected us and feared us. And at that time, he was less convinced that they still feared us. And I'm worried that we've kind of, as we pull back, as we stepped out of the regions, we've left a lot of opening that's unclear that we're feared or respected. I think this is a huge opportunity for us to you know, plant our flag. We did a great job, I think, in Europe where NATO coalesced, right? NATO did not fracture. NATO seems stronger than ever. That's pulling together. So maybe this is a chance, again, get our attention fit, focused on where it needs to be, be the allies that we need to be, figure out how to work with these countries, how, figure out how we're going to secure the commodities and resources we need to make this shift to sustainability, right? We need cobalt. We need lithium. So all the talk here has been about oil. We need those other things, and they're all occurring in places that, to a large degree, we've been pulling our flag out. I think it's time to pull our flag back in the ground, lay claim to things, help create economic environments that are good. And it feels like, at least in the last year or so, the national security apparatus 
has pulled together in a way that's pushing people that direction. I think companies have figured it out in a lot of ways. Companies are searching to do more and more business in countries they can trust and feel comfortable with. So I feel maybe the pendulum switched and we're going to get back to you know pushing where we need to be. I think we're going to have to fight through fake news, all these things. But that's where I think the hope is we get back and people figure out where we stand in the world and it's for the good and we get business you know, really going strong. It might not be as global as it once was, but it'll be a better and safer economy for us and our allies and friends. Peter, thanks for closing us out today. Gentlemen, thank you so much for sharing your insights and wisdom with us. To our audience, thank you for taking time out of your busy Thursday um, to let us share some of our thoughts with you. Again, if you have any follow-on questions, you can always reach out to academy at info at academysecurities.com. Uh, thanks for letting us be part of your day and have a wonderful rest of the week.